My guest today on Mission Impact is Julia Campbell. Julia and I talk about ethical storytelling and what it is and why it's so important for nonprofits to consider as they share stories of their impact. The misconceptions that people have about social media and its place in your organization's marketing mix, as well as why leveraging your own marketing assets is key. And we also talk about what that means. Mission Impact is a podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr for the, for the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. So welcome, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Carol. So I'd like to start each conversation with um, what drew you to the work you do? What motivates you and what would you say is your why? I have always been very attracted to social justice work and social justice issues. And when I was in high school, I was involved, I couldn't even vote, but I was involved in the Clinton-Gore campaign. I started a recycling program at my high school. There was no recycling program. I just have always been very involved in activism and changing the world for the better. It sounds kind of simplistic um, and cliche, but I really always have been. And then in college, I volunteered at several different nonprofits in Boston. I went to school in Boston and decided to enter the Peace Corps. So I was in the U.S. Peace Corps uh, for two and a half years after I left, um, after I graduated from college. And that was where I really worked, started working with international NGOs and other organizations and also started fundraising and truly understanding what it takes to make a difference in a culture because I feel like I feel like with the Peace Corps, especially, I'm just speaking for myself, but I also feel like this is kind of a, you know, this is almost a how people perceive us is we do have this sort of white savior complex where we go into these countries and we think we're going to change everything and make everything better. And what I really learned was that you have to immerse yourself in a culture and listen and hear the stories and truly understand what's going on and you can't just say i'm going to come in here and build a well and raise a ton of money for a well and then leave and that really opened my eyes because a lot of the ngos were doing that so when i got home i thought i'm going to work for nonprofits but really help them understand how they do fundraising how they do marketing and and if it is maybe being harmful to the communities that they're trying to serve so i've worked in um, domestic violence i've worked in international relations. I've worked in early childhood, rape crisis centers. I've pretty much run the gamut from large organizations. I worked at Boston University where I graduated. And then I've worked in really small organizations with tiny budgets. And I think the work that the nonprofit sector does is so incredibly vital. No one else is going to do it. Okay. The government can't do it or won't do it. The private sector won't do it. So we're filling this really important gap and solving these problems. And I, I just feel really strongly that people need to be advocating for the sector. And I'm just, I'm just such a strong advocate for it. Yeah. So it's, I, I realized um, uh, when I was looking at your bio that, that you were a returned Peace Corps volunteer. And I think I've had, you're probably at least the third guest that had Great. that, that experience um, in that background. 
We always yes. end up in nonprofit, don't we? Exactly, exactly. Or AmeriCorps, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I really appreciate the the perspective that you that that helped you um, come to around, you know, how stories are used, um, you know, how they can be used for harm. I think I think it, you know, there was a lot of common practices um, in, you know, and I'm not a fundraising person, but you know, just observing being in the sector in fundraising that now people are questioning and saying, you know, that's really not ethical. Mm-hmm. It's very exploitative. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm curious about how you're helping organizations kind of shift that and tell their story, but not take advantage of the people that they're actually trying to help. There's an entire tidal wave in the sector right now. I think because younger people are starting to take the reins and younger generations do not put up with things that we have put up with in terms of exploitation or unethical storytelling, unethical practices, and they will call you out. So what we learned in terms of best practices and fundraising, when we all, I didn't study fundraising, but I read a ton of books. I took a lot of courses. I went to a lot of conferences, mostly predominantly taught by white people. What I learned was you have to pull these heartstrings. You have to tell these sob stories you have to start from a place of, of deficit and it's called, it's called like deficit thought basically. So then I started to study, I, I didn't feel very good about it. And I started to talk to other people that were doing fundraising work and saying, no, there are stories of hope and inspiration and there are, they don't need to be tied in a bow. You don't need to say, oh, everything's, you know, grand and Mary Poppins, And it's just, it's not the reality, but still, if you think of the, um, the Sarah McLachlan ad, uh, the arms of the angels where she's sort of singing and there's all these abused animals around her and it's the shots of these dogs and cats and it's always played on cable TV and they, the ASPCA pulled that ad because they did raise money from it initially, but if you're constantly doing that kind of storytelling, it's it's not only unethical, but it's very fatiguing and people get numb to it and people, they want to turn it off. They grab the remote. They, I mean, there are whole stories of people saying, oh, that ad came on and I had to like actually leave the room and I couldn't deal with it anymore. The other thing is giving the person that is sharing their story agency and making sure that they understand that this is not necessarily their defining moment. This is just something that happened to them. So the terminology now has really shifted. And I think it's interesting where we don't say, and I'm still working on this and I'm not perfect as well. We don't say homeless person. We say person experiencing homeless, homelessness. We don't say domestic violence survivor. You know, we say person experiencing domestic violence or person living with a disability or um, person living with misuse and substance abuse. So the terminology has changed. So we don't make the experience that someone is having be the focal point of their whole life and it doesn't define them. And then there are, there are all sorts of interesting studies and all sorts of people talking about ethical storytelling around using terms like at risk, vulnerable. I think you are, can still use marginalized populations. It's changing all the time. I think it's interesting. And to me, I don't think it's about sort of canceling people or telling people they're wrong if they use a certain term. It just opens up a conversation for something that I think is really interesting. And I think the sector does need to do 
a lot of introspection into how we might have, you know, we shared all of these videos of kids in Africa with bellies distended and flies around their face. And if you look at the work of Charity Water in particular, one of my, one of my favorite charities, you know, you can love them or hate them. Their whole perspective was, we want to make giving joyous. We want to make people happy. We don't want to guilt people into giving. We want to make people excited and proud to be a part of what we're doing. And that's going to help retain donors. And that's going to help people continue to give because if they're constantly guilted into giving, it's not a good feeling. So we want to make people feel great about giving and feel proud about being part of the cause. Yeah. So, um, one of the one of the areas in 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 addition to to storytelling, or I guess it's not really an addition; it's a it's a way to deliver a story. Yeah. Uh, you you work a lot um, with helping nonprofits with their social media and social mm-hmm. media presence, and I feel like it's an area that that can really trip people up. Um, what would you say are some of the key things that people need to consider in pursuing a, a social media strategy? They need to consider how much time it truly takes to be mm. successful. <laughs> so we need to get out of this mindset that it's free. So Carol, I could come to your house and give you a puppy for free. I mean, I don't know if you want a puppy, but oh, I got one of those free puppies and he yeah. cost me like $150 the first vet visit to the vet. <laughs> exactly. And then walking every day and feeding them. It's like technically, you know, maybe having a kid is not free because of the medical bills, but you could technically have a child in the middle of the woods for free, but then of course there's so much upkeep. There's upkeep. There's taking care of what you've created. So I always give the analogy of the puppy because yes, you, it sounds great on the surface. It's free, but your time is not free. Your effort, your energy, your bandwidth, none of that is free. And then also, of course, as we know now to really get more visibility, you do have to play the ad game, whether or not you, think it's ethical to pay Facebook. I'm constantly going back and forth on that, but there's also lots of other platforms, YouTube, LinkedIn, Pinterest, TikTok. There's so many other platforms that we can explore. So what I do, and I'll, I'll just summarize it really quickly is I teach nonprofits, the four pillars of social media management, because you can't say, I'm just going to get on TikTok without doing all four of these things. And so something else is going to have to come off your plate. So the first pillar is sort of listening, going there, being on, let's just take TikTok for an example, being on TikTok, listening, watching, kind of lurking around, following people, seeing what works, like taking webinars, reading blog posts, really figuring out, okay, what's going on on this platform? What would my audience want to see on this platform? That takes time. The second pillar is the content creation. You have to create the content and you have to create it specifically for the platform. What you put on LinkedIn is not the same as what you're going to put on YouTube. It's not the same as what you're going to put on Instagram. So you need to have that content creation strategy specific for the platform. And then the third pillar is community management. This is following people, looking at who's following you, going in, responding to comments, responding to your DMs, interacting in conversations, going into chats, being present, because social media is a two-way street. You can't just use it as a billboard or a newspaper ad. And then the fourth pillar is measurement and analysis, really taking time. This doesn't take 
three hours a week to do measurement analysis. If you're on one platform, you can quickly just do a scan and say, are we growing? Are we not growing? What, what posts were popular, which were not popular? What happened this week? Um, and just do kind of a scan of it. And then the key with pillar four though, is the reporting out because what we don't wanna do is do our work in a vacuum. And we wanna to report to the board, we wanna to report to the staff, we wanna to report to executive directors because we wanna show them this is actually work. A lot of them still think it's like tweeting about what you had for lunch. I have never once tweeted about what I had for lunch ever once. I probably have put a picture of a cappuccino or something on Instagram. But I've never done that. And that's the whole misconception is that this is not an actual job. This doesn't require actual skill, but it really does. So every time you think about, should I be on this platform? Should I adopt another platform? Are you doing those four pillars? Are you accomplishing those on the ones you're already on? And then if you're not, get get those ducks in a row before you jump on another platform. Yeah, when I was thinking about, you know, just for my my practice, for my consulting practice, um, you know, how my, I use social media and that the second, well, the first thing that you said of how much time do you have to, to give to it, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I was like, okay, to be reasonable, I'm going to pick one. I, I yes. do LinkedIn, that's it. And oh, LinkedIn uh, is great for B2B. Like that's the best place to go for B2B. Right. I just felt like the other places, it's like probably not where people are hanging out. Um, but and also, it actually, it's a really good point. I just had a podcast interview with my friend, Angela Pitter, who's a LinkedIn expert. And what she said was, she said, you have to think about what people are doing on the platforms. So like you said, they're not really on Facebook looking for people to connect with professionally. They're hanging out with their friends. They're watching cat videos. They're doing, you know, fun things with friends and family. They're looking at baby pictures. They're not necessarily using it the way people use LinkedIn. So I think that's smart. I think that's a very smart strategic move. Yeah. The only thing I practically go on Facebook for anymore is to see what picture I posted or what I posted eight years ago. I like the you memories. Know, to, to look at I memories. like memories. I, can't, I kind of, <laughs> always wish that I could get off Facebook. I can't escape it, but I, I, I have I've moved Facebook it off groups my that I run, so I can't, right, I can't exactly. officially leave. Exactly. Exactly. But I do, I do spend a lot less time on it. <clears throat> yeah. And I think, you know, for a long time I was just posting, right? So then I heard the phrase, the posting and ghosting, and that's essentially posting and what ghosting. I was doing. And, um, you know, then more recently just, you know, started doing the other things that you're talking about of actually getting in there, commenting on people's engaging and, you know, just, it, there's just a lot more, um, I don't know, it was more satisfying actually to, mm -hmm. to, to, to do that, to feel like you're, you know, you, you're, you're getting to know people that way. And actually I think we, we connected originally cause you had posted something about getting on podcast and I was like oh I've got one and we yeah talk to each other that's so, what I love well it's like the actual LinkedIn remembering asking, you shall receive right. really yeah I posted that I said I, I'm really interested in being on more podcasts this year I have my own podcast I'm just putting it out there I had so many introductions the LinkedIn community is so generous and so welcoming and just so happy to make connections with other people that's I found it to be a much warmer community than Facebook. Which is ironic, right? It's ironic, <laughs> but you know, all of the CEOs, they make their own decisions about 
what they allow on the platform and what they don't and right. what they make go viral and what they don't. And I think Facebook, especially the more provocative, the more angry you are, the more negative you are, that's what's going viral and getting mm -hmm. eyeballs. And mm -hmm. that's why that's what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the, one of the misconceptions that you talked about was that it's, well, it's just free. There, it's, you know, it's not really it's something that somebody can do on the side. What are some other misconceptions that people have about um, including social media in their marketing strategies? That it, I think there's, there's so many. One that I would say is that it can substitute for other things that are working. Mm. So social media is really the icing on the cake. It's really one of those things that People have definitely built their business on, but how I feel about it is I feel like you should be using it and leveraging it to bring people into other owned platforms. So your email list, maybe subscribing to your blog, making a donation on your platform. You need to be consistently bringing people over to your owned platforms because social media is rented land they can and will and do pull the rug out from under us very frequently. Do you remember when Facebook pages started? I will never forget this because I was working at a nonprofit and my executive director called me and said, we have to get a Facebook page. And I was on it um, because I had, I still had my college account. So I could still like get on it. I wasn't in college at the time, but I had like an EDU address. And I said, I don't know, like, is this a marketing place? This is all college kids like just talking about stuff but she said no it's going to be free and it's going to be it's going to replace websites and it's going to be a free way that we can talk to all of our fans and followers people still think that and to me i think if we look at the data you really can only reach a tiny percentage of your fans and followers using social media not to say that if you have built a community you should leave but we need to be consistently bringing people over to our email list and our owned properties where we can then build a deeper relationship with them. And also you can bring, assuming you've earned and it's permission-based your email list, you can bring that email list anywhere. You can change providers. If you don't like this one provider, you can communicate with these people. You can use that as huge leverage. And if you think about the way we use email, it's a much more intimate experience than social media because a lot of us are spending less time kind of scrolling on social, but we still all spend the majority of our day in our inbox, a lot of us. So to me, I do teach social media marketing and I think it's a fantastic way to reach new audiences and younger audiences and to do fun things and experiment and build ambassadors and, and really, you know, advertise events, things like that. But I, I don't want people to put all their eggs in that basket. We have to have a multi-channel digital marketing strategy that also includes our website. Search engine optimization is essential. People are searching. People will never stop using Google. Maybe they will one day. Google is so popular and huge. We, we want people to be able to find us where they are. So the other, the other misconception that is really popular is that you have to be on all the platforms. And you have to kind of just cut and paste what you do across all the platforms. I, I, what I've seen now, the trend is people are two platforms, maybe. Now I need to start doing that because I need to really start focusing on two platforms. I feel like I spread myself so thin and I think a lot of us do, but 
the trend now, if you go to influencers' websites or if you go to brands that are just starting out, they're not gonna you're not gonna see the 27 little logos on the bottom. You're gonna see Instagram probably and maybe Twitter. And that might be it. Or maybe YouTube. It depends if you're video based or visual based or if you're text based. Like LinkedIn is fantastic for B2B and consultants. But I do see the streamlining as being a big trend and the sort of going all in to one or two platforms as opposed to being everywhere at once. And I actually think that's a gift to nonprofits because we can't be expected to manage, unless you're a full-time social media person, which very few nonprofits have, you cannot be expected to do those four pillars that I talked about on seven different platforms every week. It's just not feasible. What you used a um, phrase uh, owned the your owned properties mm-hmm. and it's rented. Can you say a little bit more about that? I don't know if people exactly get what you're saying there. Right. So say you have an event in person or virtual. Someone signs up for this event, permission based. You ask them to come. They come, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's in person. They give you their contact information. You now own that contact information and you have it. And if someone goes to your website, signs up for your email newsletter on your little form that I hope you have on your website. If someone subscribes to your blog, if you have that old school, like I have on my blog WordPress, people can subscribe to your blog. Those are owned. You own those and you can take those wherever you go. Sure. You know, people will unsubscribe and move and email addresses will bounce. And that's not what I'm saying. But you do not own, you can't like upload your Facebook fans. And this is a big problem. And also we know you can't get the contact information from people that donate to you on Facebook. So what I would do is just kind of take these tools for what they are. Raise money on Facebook, raise money on Instagram. Don't worry about the contact information, but don't put all your eggs in that basket. You own your CRM, you know, your database. Every, you could switch a database and still bring all those contacts with you. Your direct mail list, you own that. So to me, I want us to build our donor files, our supporter files, using these tools, these amplifying tools is what I call them. But we can't just say, okay, we're not going to have a website or an email list anymore because we have Facebook. Because Facebook, remember that day Facebook went down the whole day? Um, I was actually running a fundraising campaign for a client And we had multiple posts that were going to go out. We were going to do a Facebook live. We had Instagram posts and we had to completely cancel all of it because the, the both platforms were down for the entire day and we had no control over that. So we had to rely on email and we still did a lot. We did like a YouTube live and things like that. But, but what I learned was, okay, now we really we cannot rely on this. Like this is just a a good to have a nice to have, but we can't put all of our effort and all of our eggs in this basket because what if it went down? Like, I'm just thinking of giving Tuesday, if Facebook went down, so many nonprofits would have lost thousands of dollars. Um, So it's a, it's kind of like a good to have, you need to have it, but focus on the other elements of your marketing program that you can, you have more control over. 
Yeah, I remember when Facebook first started having the, the fundraisers, I think they were linking it like, it's your birthday, have a fundraiser. And so I did one and I, yeah. yeah, I didn't realize at that point that the the nonprofit that I had, you know, did the fundraiser for wouldn't actually get any information about who donated. And I was like, well, this is not helping them. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, it's helping them in a, in the very short term, yeah. right? Um, well, maybe... I kind of have a different perspective on that. So I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, sure. I, the way I feel about Facebook fundraisers is yes, it's not a way to build your donor file long-term. You're not going to get major donors and plan givers and like build this funnel, but I'm sure that a lot of your friends and family had not heard of the nonprofit. So they were exposed to a brand new organization and they gave because of you, you know, they didn't necessarily give because they supported the organization. They gave because of your birthday. And then honestly, I've given for birthday fundraisers. And then I have on my own looked up the nonprofit later and got on their mailing list and maybe got more information. So I really see birthday fundraisers as marketing. It's like a marketing mm, piece interesting. because think of your friends on Facebook. They all saw that. Um, and then their friends saw that, like, if I donate to my friend Melissa's birthday fundraiser, I post about it and then my friends and family see it. So the way I think about it is it's much more marketing based than fundraising based. And yeah, you're never going to build your whole fundraising program on Facebook. And what's, what's also interesting though <laughs> about Facebook, they developed that because you remember the ALS ice bucket challenge? I can't remember what year that was there was no donate button on Facebook. So what Mark Zuckerberg saw, because I do believe that he is like actually diabolical. Like, I don't know if he's evil, but I, he's, he's like a genius and I'm not sure if it's in a good way, but what he saw was, Oh, everyone's donating, but they're going off of Facebook. So I want to keep everybody on Facebook. I don't want people going to the ALS.org and making a donation and then maybe not coming back to Facebook. So he created the donate button, really not out of the goodness of his heart. I mean, they know we, they say it, but it was to keep us on the platform. So they want to be an all encompassing, all, you know, one ring to rule them all kind of thing. And that's always been the way that they've been thinking about things. So when we think about the donate button, there are no fees involved. Fantastic. The reason we don't get the donor information is because it was never created for us. It was created so that we would stay on the platform. And so that, I mean, it's a bad user experience. If, if you get my data and then you start spamming me or you start soliciting me again, that's bad for me and I would blame Facebook. So if we look at it from a business perspective, it makes total sense not to give the data because it would be a bad move for them. This is also how we just have to look at social media. We can't have rose colored glasses because we have to understand these are multi-billion dollar businesses and the answer to their, their shareholders. Yeah, so that was a little weird, but I don't think interest. people know like how the donate button came about. I think they thought, oh, they want to do something good for nonprofits. No, they just want to <laughs> keep you on the platform. <laughs> it's really true. It's totally yeah. true. Yeah. I'm reading that amazing book. Um, I can't remember who it's by. It's all about Facebook. Um, it came out a couple of years ago and it's really eye-opening and pretty incredibly amazing. So I teach it. I love it. You know, I think it has power and potential, 
but I always take things with a grain of salt when it comes to these platforms because I just think, okay, shareholders, shareholders, they're businesses, they're businesses, they're not nonprofits like we are. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate the perspective of its, its amplification. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the nice to have, the extra, um, but it's not the core pieces. So one thing that's interesting, when I'm, when I'm doing strategic planning with organizations, I feel like almost every group, one of the themes that comes out of all the conversations mm. that I have with people is we're the best kept secret in blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Aren't and, we all though? <laughs> and I, like I just I'm wonder, I'm always, I, now, that I, now that I've heard it from so many different groups, I'm just curious, like how, I don't know, like, yes. how do you is get it over important, that? is it important for every group to be a household name? It's not possible. Well, I don't think true. it's possible. <laughs> that's true. I think, I think of the organizations where I live, some of the really small organizations, like I live in a town of 4,000 people. And if it's a food bank, it's a village technically. And if it's a, if it's the library here, it's not going to appeal like 4,000 is kind of probably the limit. Maybe people that have lived here and moved, but you're not going to get 300,000 Facebook fans. It's just not going to happen because you are serving such a small community and it's such a targeted niche thing. So we have to really tamp down our expectations. I think unless we are dealing with a cause that's in the news all the time, unless we are a national organization, unless we're an international organization. So we have to understand that not only can we not reach everybody, probably the majority of people are not going to support what we do. And that's so hard to stomach for a lot of organizations that have this passion, you know, the curse of knowledge. They know that what they do is important. They know that it's life-changing. They know that they're making a huge difference in a lot of different populations, but there are people that don't agree with food banks. You know, there are people that don't agree with homeless shelters. There are people that don't agree with arts programs. I mean, there are people that just, they don't care. They don't, and that we can't change that. So to me, I just want people to focus on, focus on who you have now and love on them and love on them and appreciate them encourage them to spread the word like you did, Carol, have a fundraiser, tell your friends and family, they are your best marketers. They are your absolute best ambassadors. And then try to find more like-minded people, but don't get hung up on being the best kept secret because how many people can get on the front page of the New York times, you know, not many, um, or even the front page of your you know, local newspaper. It's pretty rare. So I, I really encourage people and marketers, especially fundraisers, to love on the people that are there. Because what happens is we get so focused on acquiring new people and new names and new donors, and then we neglect the people we have. And I just actually, who did I just have on my podcast? Julie Edwards. She's a fundraising consultant. She was talking, she was saying that donor retention it's something like 20% or at least in the last couple of years. So we don't focus nearly enough on keeping the people we have. We're constantly focused on the next thing, the next thing. And I really think we should do more to retain and engage the people that have kind of raised their hand and said, Hey, I really like you. Uh, rather than just say, okay, where's 10 more people that like us. 
Yeah, because you hear people like, oh, we're just preaching to the choir. And uh, the choir is amazing. If you get right. the choir singing together in harmony, get more people to get them to join the choir. Like you need the choir. If you don't have mm -hmm. the choir, what are you, you doing? Well, I mean, I'm not a real church goer, but I would say if you don't have a choir, you don't have a church. Like if you don't have people attending the church and their job is really to get more people to come and to, to make it an exciting, fun thing to do, to kind of invite people say, we're having this great party over here. Do you want to come? Oh, you don't want to come right now. You can't come. It's not a good time. That's fine. The door is always open or, Hey, you want to come Here's some more information on how you can come to this party. And I think the whole notion of like beating people over the head with information and forcing them and like we, you know, bring it full circle, manipulating people and guilting people. That's just not a sustainable way. It's sort of like you need, you need to inspire people, get them excited, and then they're going to spread the gospel for staying on this metaphor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, the, yeah, the overwhelming people with information, I, um, if, if I had a magic wand to, to change the nonprofit sector, I would somehow summon all the policy people and I would sit them down with the marketing people and um, have the marketing people, you know, help them simplify their message. So on all those advocacy emails that I get, I'm now, I'm now saying this so that if a few people hear me, I want a, the highlight summary like that has like a sentence behind it. Mm -hmm. And then the second version is I want all the details. Then you can give me the version that the policy people usually give. Yes. But I want the, this it's is called TLDR, two sentence. the too long didn't read. Have exactly. Oh my God. So well, I, people write emails and it's TL colon DR. Yep. I've seen that where it's like, this is the too long didn't read version and it's two sentences. And then it's the whole <laughs> rest of the email. If you want to read it. If you want to read it, go ahead. But, uh, you know, and and so, you know, I, I just I was talking to somebody who, you know, she was interested in taking action on an on an item, yeah. uh, an, an issue. And she went to their website and she got so overwhelmed by the amount of information that was there. She just was paralyzed and didn't do anything. So the, it had exactly the opposite effect of what they wanted. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm so and, and, this and gives that, me a good idea for a blog post. All right. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, and it's true in the marketing too. We need people to synthesize information for us yes. and tell us why it's important. So yes. you and I, we can Google everything all day, every day. We do not need more information or data or statistics. We do need someone to tell us what does it mean and why it's important. And mm. I totally agree with you. Too many emails are just listing the data, but not giving me any context. Yeah, and not giving me the simple, okay, and here's here's the next thing to do, and I'm going to also help you do it. Um, yep. So one of the things you talk about is future-proofing your organization. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that and how somebody sure. might go about future-proofing? <laughs> <laughs> I talk a lot about specifically future-proofing you know, your marketing strategy, but I do think the principles would apply. My main... My main idea behind this is to build a community that is excited and inspired by what you do and that will follow you anywhere because tools and trends come and go. There's Clubhouse, there's this, there's that. Someone's gonna, something's going to come up, TikTok and Snapchat. There's, the tools are not what's important. And I think when people hear me talk about future-proofing and trends, they get excited and they're like, oh, she's going to talk about 
the five tools that you need, but actually the tools are really the least important thing. It's if you understand your audience and truly understand what they want. And just like we just said, if you can really distill your message down into the why and not focus so much on the how, also if you're adaptable. So we have to be more proactive. That's a huge thing that I teach and that I advocate for. Rather than simply reacting to changes or putting our head in the sand and saying, we can't fundraise because of X, Y, Z, or we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do this. Trying to be as proactive as possible around the things that you can control or the things that you do have in your wheelhouse. So we can't control things like the war in Ukraine. We can't control things like, I remember George Floyd's murder and and the Black Lives Matter protests and clients of mine had fundraising campaigns, they had marketing campaigns going on. You just have to say, like, trust your gut and say, okay, we're going to be quiet now, but then not be quiet forever. Don't think because the world is constantly changing. I mean, the only constant is really change. Don't think because the world is so in upheaval that you can't, you can't connect with people. And then another thing that I teach is just to communicate more than you think you need to. You are not annoying people if you are sending out relevant, interesting communications that people want to hear. So yeah, you're annoying me if you send me five emails that are written the exact same way that just ask me for money. But if you're communicating with me weekly or twice a month about the impact of my donation, about the problem, about the solution that you're providing, about things that you're doing, what should I know? What do I need to know? If you are becoming a thought leader and a go-to resource, then the tools don't matter. And the method of communication doesn't really matter. So I think the only way to future-proof yourself is to become a real go-to resource and thought leader in your industry, even if it's tiny and small and not quote unquote sexy. Although I don't believe there are no sexy causes. I hear that all the time. My cause isn't sexy. Well, sexy is in the eye of the beholder, as we know, like what I think is sexy, you might not think is sexy. So I think that it's in the eye of the beholder, but really being able to understand your audience, what's important to them and what motivates them. And then just constantly be proactive in giving that to your audience. That's really the only way we're going to get through the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years <laughs> of total upheaval and change. Yeah. And that goes back to what you were saying before of, you know, really pay attention to the people who are already there, who've already raised mm -hmm. their hand, who've already said they're interested, um, yeah. you know, yeah, keep educating them, and, but it doesn't need to be, you know, a dissertation every time too. And give them the tools to spread the word. So Right, like helping them be an ambassador. Yeah, yeah cause because I think I've people want people to do that yeah. and they don't, they, they're not necessarily, um, that's maybe somewhere where, where some how might actually be helpful, right? Like how do you, how would, you know, what are some steps that you might be able to take to let other people know about the organization, et cetera? Right. If you can't, I see Global Citizen is a fantastic example. I get their emails and it's honestly, there's great articles and information, but there's always like, here's a step you can take this month. Mm. Tweet this out, sign this petition, put this on Facebook. It's usually just very simple activations like that. They do fundraising campaigns, but they, it's very rare. It's mostly, here's something small you can do to spread the word about this and to help us 
you know, reach more eyeballs and more people that are um, interested. And it, it does make you feel good. I mean, especially, and they're targeting a very, very young audience. Actually, they target a lot of college students and like Gen Z who might not have the ability to make a donation. I'm thinking of my daughter, she's 12. She doesn't have a bank account, right? So she's on TikTok, but she still like elevates the voices of people. And to her sharing, commenting, that's a huge deal to that generation. So, and you're kind of building it up for them to care about these causes. And then when it's, it's a long-term game here. And then when they become, you know, my age, and then they can actually make donations, hopefully they will have remembered that experience that they had. So it's, I just see it as playing, playing a really long-term game. There's so many different generations that we have to interact with now. I mean, I think there's like seven distinct generations right now. So we, we can't, we can't ignore the people with the money, right? The boomers, but we can't ignore the people that are coming up and that are really active and digital natives and are excited to spread the word and talk about it. So we just need to have different approaches, I think for, for both ends. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So at the end of each uh, conversation, I like to ask um, a somewhat random um, icebreaker question. Yes. And so I've pulled one out of my, my handy icebreaker question box. Yes. So if you could have any fictional character as your friend, who would you choose and why? Oh, wow. That is such an amazing, amazing, amazing question. Okay. I don't want to think too long about this because I have so many books that I love. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, I just had it in my brain and I lost it. Well, right now I'm reading. Well, first of all, I should probably say Katniss from Hunger Games because I'm obsessed with Hunger Games, but I'm not <laughs> sure she'd be such a good friend. Yeah, so, she'd be hard to be a friend with. <laughs> don't know if she'd be like a really fun person to hang out with, but I'm reading Station Eleven right now. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've read that. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, and it's a TV show on HBO Max. So I would have Kirsten, um, the main character, I believe. I would, I would love to, to hang out with her. I think she'd be fun. Yes, yes. She was a really, really interesting character. Yeah, it's like cool. it's just such an interesting experience. And um, just she's and very you know into Shakespeare. I, and I, I think it'd be cool. Yeah. And what was so interesting, that, that book and then the series, um, you know, it's one of the many after, after some huge apocalypse uh, story. But what I really appreciated about that one um, versus so many others is mm-hmm. that, sure, there was some fighting between different yes. groups of people, yeah. but that wasn't really the focus. It's not like Walking Dead, where it's just a bunch of oh, yeah. people fighting all the time. Yeah. And and so many of the other um, after the apocalypse are always people fighting. And this one, I really yeah. felt like it much more centered people taking care of each other. I and totally I was like, that's agree. what's actually going to happen. Like, yeah, sure, yeah. people are going to fight and be territorial. It's not going to be Mad Max. 
It's not going to be Mad Max. People are going to like take care of each other. Oh, can I add one more that I just <laughs> sure, remember? sure. Joe of Little Women, obviously. Oh yeah. You got to hang out with Joe or Anna, <laughs> Anna Green Gables. Okay, now I've got a million of them. <laughs> Well, we'll just have a tea party with all of them. Together? Have a dinner party. That would be amazing. There you go. That's a great, great question. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what's coming up for you? What are you excited about um, in your work these days? Yay, I'm traveling a lot more for work um, and speaking. And I am running my nonprofit social media summit again this year, November 2nd and 3rd. Um, the registration page is not up yet, but we're, we're really excited about that. I'm working with, um, neon one CRM on the third year of our summit. We did it in person, 2019 virtual last year, and we're doing a virtual this year again. Um, and my podcast nonprofit nation, I absolutely love it. Some fantastic episodes and great guests coming up. So I, I just, I'm really I'm feeling very positive for 2022. I really am. I think, I think it, I mean, <laughs> I felt very positive about 2020 and 2021, but this year is our year. This is the year that it's going to be, it's going to be good, but I'm just feeling very, very positive and optimistic. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great. Thanks, Carol. Great having you on the podcast and really appreciated the conversation. Thank you so much. Anytime. I appreciated Julia's point about the marketing assets that you own versus your presence on social media. Whatever following you cultivate on social media, you only have access to them to the extent the algorithm and the platform puts your stuff in front of them. I was talking to somebody recently who said they post on LinkedIn to broadcast what they're up to, but that isn't really the case because the LinkedIn algorithm decides whether it puts your post in someone's feed or not. When you send an email to your list, you know you're sending it directly to the person. They may not open it and read it, but at least you know you've sent it to them. So your subscriber list, your donor list, these are all important marketing and fundraising assets of your organization. I also appreciated her different take on Facebook fundraisers that they're actually serving more of a marketing purpose by making more people aware of an organization they may not have heard of before. So even though the organization is not getting the donor information from the fundraiser, you're still getting them a little bit of money in the short term and some visibility. And her advice to love on the people that are there reminded me of Stu Swindford's comment on the value of the choir. Both are saying, care for the people who already support you. Give them tools and resources to be able to spread the word. But don't assume that they know how to be a good ambassador for your organization. Make sure you give them the resources and time to practice sharing your good news. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Julia, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. And I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Coaster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. We would love to hear from you. We'd love it if you would take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. Until next time.